My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. And welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Ryan Anderson. In the last few decades, Those of us who live in rich countries have been bombarded with the message that we must think of ourselves solely as individuals, fragmented and isolated from anything greater and shared. Margaret Thatcher's iconic decree, There's No Such Thing as Society, set the tone, and cuts to social programs and other forms of collective provision drove it home. Sociologists like Robert Putnam have identified a dramatic erosion in collective civic engagement. Yet despite the range of powerful political compulsions and very real shifts over the neoliberal era, there are many people who have never given up on the idea of the common good, and on the hard but satisfying work of collaborating across difference to bring it into being. Ryan Anderson grew up in small-town Alberta. He first started asking big questions about society and about injustice after he spent time via an exchange program living on a First Nation in Saskatchewan and then in Guatemala. He says, quote, encountering two genocides just sort of shook up my view of the world, end quote. His questioning eventually led him to train as a pastor at Harvard University in Boston. During his training, he worked at an inner-city, largely African-American church where he received a crash course in community organizing. He got to witness firsthand a process in which different faith groups, community groups, unions, and more took up the struggle for affordable housing and ultimately made some big gains. Fast forward a bunch of years. By this point, Anderson was a parish pastor in Calgary. His church did many of the things that churches do to address urgent needs in the community in a direct way, but he was well aware that they weren't building towards the kinds of structural change that might get at the roots of the problems people were facing. So when someone sat down with him and said, hey, do you think maybe we could build some kind of organization that does community organizing, he thought back to his time in Boston and replied with an emphatic yes. That began a long, challenging process and a great deal of work that stretched out over a number of years and finally led last fall to the formal founding assembly of the Calgary Alliance for the Common Good. At a certain point along the way, Anderson stepped away from his work as a pastor to become the group's lead organizer, and today, the Alliance brings together 30 different organizations, including a range of faith groups and unions, that collectively represent about 35,000 people. The group draws on the organizing model of the Industrial Areas Foundation, which has been doing this kind of work in the United States and beyond since 1940. The fundamental building block of the Alliance's work is what they call the relational meeting, sitting down with someone one-on-one and doing a lot of listening to who they are, what their lives are like, and what matters to them. From these meetings, they construct larger processes that involve determining issues that people might be willing to work on, building networks of active members, and identifying community leaders. Active participants are given plenty of opportunities to receive training in community organizing skills. The Alliance has various committees and teams with responsibility for specific issues and tasks, and it is ultimately governed by an assembly of representatives from each member organization. 
Over a year ago, the Alliance initiated a process in which they trained 50 people who then went back to their home organizations and had one-on-one -on -one or small group meetings with around 1,000 people to identify key issues that people wanted to fight for. They came up with mental health, social isolation and community building, the environment, and reconciliation with indigenous peoples. In each of these areas, the group has been identifying demands and establishing campaigns. Along with these longer-term initiatives, they've also shown a capacity to respond to issues as they arise, including with their highly successful Keep Calgary Strong campaign, which Anderson says played an important role in winning the reversal of around $77 million of proposed municipal budget cuts last year. I speak with Anderson about the Calgary Alliance for the Common Good and about their slow, steady brand of community organizing. My name is Ryan Anderson. I am the lead organizer for the Calgary Alliance for the Common Good. The Calgary Alliance for the Common Good brings together 30 different, largely membership and community-based organizations that represent about 35,000 Calgarians, and we really come together so that we can work together and use our collective power to address issues that are affecting our community broadly. Our membership would be everything from faith communities to labor unions to nonprofits to universities to ethnocultural groups. And then a part of our work is just bringing that mixture together so they can engage in the politics of our common life. After high school, I went on a Canada World Youth Exchange, and I went and lived, first of all, on a First Nations Reserve in Saskatchewan, the Thunderchild Reserve, and then I actually went down to Guatemala. I grew up in small town Camrose, Alberta, and going from sort of a small town to really encountering two genocides just sort of shook up my view of the world. And then I started asking some deeper questions about, so why does this happen? So I started asking, first of all, sociological and political and philosophical questions. And then ultimately, I started asking actually spiritual questions as well, too. And then I lived in a monastery for a while, did a bunch of other things, and eventually was training to become a pastor. And I went to Harvard. And when I was training to do this, I worked for this inner city, largely African-American parish with one of the grandfathers of community organizing in the United States, someone named John Heinemeyer. What I saw blew me away. It was the first time that I actually saw faith communities being really effective in terms of taking on big social issues. At the time, they were taking on an affordable housing fight. And in Boston at the time, basically, like many cities, the developers controlled the politics and they also controlled what happens with the land. And they controlled city council, but there's something called the Greater Boston Interfaith Organizing. And they were able to bring together over 2,000 people in this big African-American church and to meet with the mayor. And the joke we often say is like, what's the one skill all politicians need is the ability to count. The mayor of Boston at the time looked around at all these people and went, yes, we'll get you land. Because these people represented not just 2,000 people, but they were all tied to organizations that represented far more people. So they represented real power, real community power. Eventually, this affordable housing campaign actually won a affordable housing trust in Massachusetts. I think it was over $300 million. And over time, it's built something like 17,000 affordable housing units. So fast forward many years later, and I was a parish pastor in Calgary, and we were doing something from in from the cold. So we had like 17 people sleeping on our church floor on cots once a month. And looking at this, it just was like, this is not how you address affordable housing. Like, people need a home. But to address that, that's really talking about big structural changes. It's really about political will. What political will does it take to actually ensure that we prioritize building non-market housing and supportive housing for people who need it? One day, someone sat down with me, someone named Michael Walters, and said, hey, are you interested in how we can build a community organizing organization here? And you know, remembering my experience in Boston, I was like, absolutely. So then I became one of the community leaders who was involved in building what was then called the Metro Alliance for the Common Good. 
And then about five years ago now, we had built the Interfaith Council here, done work around the poverty reduction strategy, and we sort of asked, like, well, do we close it down or do we hire someone to really embrace community organizing fully? And they said, hey, Ryan, would you want to take on this job? And so I took on this job as the community organizer. And since then, we've built it up to 30 organizations now and went from a small group of volunteers to now we represent about 35,000 people. When we first started, we're just a group of people around the table and we're supported by something called Industrial Areas Foundation. The foundation of community organizing is actually quite different than how people often think about how you address social issues. Often people think, well, you pick an issue, you do really good communications, you get people to rally around it. But community organizing says actually where you need to start with is with relationships. Building relationships, especially across difference, taking the time to understand people's self-interest and what they care about and what they want to be about, and really addressing people as human beings, as full and rich human beings. Really, the first part of the work is really just about doing one-to-one relational meetings, which we actually describe as the most radical thing we do, both because it gets to the very heart of what we do, and so it's a root that supports everything else, but also taking the time to actually get to know, see the potential in someone, to work with someone, and to take that time is a real shift compared to how most of our culture functions now. And so, yeah, how you get there is you spend a whole lot of time doing one-to-one relational meetings. And then you begin calling people together and you begin finding leaders. Now, the organization through its early days had lots of ups and downs and we lost lots of leaders at one point and so had to rebuild things several times. But yeah, since I was hired, it was really about this intentional one-to-ones, calling together leaders, trying to look for those people who are actual leaders or potential leaders within the community and then bringing them together. And then we've had to jump the normal process a little bit. We actually jumped into some action campaigns so people could actually experience what the potential was. And then once people experienced the potential, we had this assembly in which we had about 150 people at Temple B'nai Tikva and we had the city councillors up front and they were like responding to what we were asking for. I think people caught a vision of what it was about and then more and more people got engaged. You got to raise money to support our organization. You got to find more leaders and it just kept building. And then eventually we got to a point where we had diversity of members. We had some real power within our membership and also financial support for it. And we had what was called a founding assembly. So back in October, I think there was about five to 600 people who were at Knox United Church. Together, all these people across the city came together and formally founded it as an organization. Tell me more about that basic building block of your work that you mentioned, the relational meeting. What does a one-to-one look like? It looks like people sitting down and having a cup of coffee together. And then it's about curiosity. So taking the time to just be curious about who is this person in front of you? What's their story? What are their interests? What does this person really care about? And sometimes that's revealed in stories and sometimes it's revealed in why they're doing what they're doing right now or Also pay attention to, like, what are their hopes? What are their dreams? Maybe even who do they want to become? What type of legacy do they want to leave? Or finding out what are their pressures in their lives? Or also, what makes them angry? Anger is often a sign that people deeply care about something. So often we look for anger, and we look for passion and love, and also look for people who are political. Political, not in terms of partisanship, but who can think about how do you move issues forward? How do you have to balance all the issues? And so we look for those people or people who have followings. And then you begin to think about how do you connect that person with others? How do you give them opportunities where they can grow or where they can see the potential of the work? And then usually you do more than one of them because relationships take time. And what are the different ways that you make the transition from one-on-one relationship building to organizations saying, yes, we want to be part of your alliance? 
It happens differently with every organization, of course. If you have someone who has some type of leadership within the organization, now it could be formal leadership, like you know, they might be a president of a union, they might be a rabbi in a synagogue, or they might be the president of the board or whatever. But sometimes there's also people who have informal leadership as well. Someone who's just a member of an organization, but who people will follow and listen to. Once you find someone like that, and they have had experience of what their work's about, have a vision of what's possible and say like, you know, I want my organization on board. Then it's really about thinking about power. So what does it take to actually move things forward within that organization? Like who makes decisions? And it's never like a group of people. It's usually individual people. And then thinking about, well, how is this in an organization's interest, but also how is it in the interest of those people who are around that deciding body? And then it's moving it through whatever process an organization has. And then if the organization chooses to join, and you know, we have more organizations that choose not to join than choose to join often. So when an organization chooses to join, and then what we do is we sit down with their leaders and say, okay, how is this meaningful to you? How does this help organizations grow and flourish? But then also, what can that organization contribute? How does it get involved? And then it's a relationship building about making sure that we're addressing both the organizational interests, but then also really bringing in the strength of each of those organizations to our collective work. And since the Alliance has been up and running, what have its week-to-week and month-to-month core activities looked like? Let me back up a little bit. How do you get 30 different organizations to agree on addressing the same issue? To do that, what we actually do is we actually teach our people to listen to their members. So over a year ago, we trained about 50 people who then went back and they listened to over a thousand of their members and not surveys, but actually listening in like one-to-one conversations or small group meetings, what we call house meetings. And so they listen to over a thousand people and they listen to like, what are their pressures, but also what are people's hopes? And what's really critical, what do people have the energy to fight for? And who are those people who have that energy to fight for it? One of the lines we often say is, if you just have issues, you have a report that will sit on a shelf. But if you find things that people are passionate about and put the time and effort into, then you can do something with it. So we listen to find leaders and also issues. And then together as an alliance, we voted on what are the issues that we want to focus on? Mental health was far and above everything else, the number one concern that was surfacing from things that people cared about and wanted to really work on. But then also social isolation and building inclusive communities was another one. Addressing issues around the environment, especially in a way that's not polarizing. We're in Calgary, Alberta, so the heart of the oil industry in Canada, where most people either directly or indirectly earn their income from. But people are also, they have kids and they have grandkids, they breathe the air, they hike in the mountains, they also care about our environment. So how do we find a way of addressing our environmental concerns in a way that is not demonizing, but rather finds solution and moves forward? And then the other big issue is truth and reconciliation between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. How do we begin to address that in ways that are concrete and based on relationships? Because we're looking for leaders, all of those issues have teams of community leaders who are coming together to try to figure out what are some concrete, specific, and winnable ways that we can address those issues. One of the issues is that you know a lot of people who are from communities have never been really trained how to lead. We do not believe that leadership is this inherent magical gift that some people have, but rather that leadership is something that is learned. It's a skill that's practiced and crafted by people who are trained in how to lead and have opportunities to lead and coaching and how to lead. So the heart of my job is actually training leaders and coaching them and working with them to lead these different initiatives. And then what we do is we move into action. What type of action we take is based on what will cause the reaction that we want. 
So, for example, we had this campaign called the Keep Calgary Strong campaign that was in response to budget cuts that at first were just unprecedented, like the middle of the summer. You know, great time to not get a public reaction to it. And we were able to mobilize a response to it. We mobilized over 350 people to show up at City Hall. But we also mobilized people to engage with their city councillors, to engage in social media, and we engaged with the media as well. And then we had the same campaign come up at budget time in November. And interesting enough, what we've heard from city councillors was the most impactful thing that our people did was that our members contacted their city councillors and actually wrote in or phoned in and said, do you know what, I am willing to pay more taxes to be able to preserve the services that keep our city vital. And the city councillors had never gotten such a response. What do your trainings involve? The first thing we teach people is to think about power. Most good progressive people don't think seriously about power and don't think about power as something that's good and positive. I know back when I was a parish pastor, we were in effect trained to think of power as a bad thing. And, you know, if you have power, that's something you have to like avoid. And, you know, powerful people are bad people almost with implication. And then what happens is either power is used badly or often power is used under the table. Or what's really most common is that people actually adopt the worst form of power, something that we call power over. And I think that's the only option. So one of the first things we really focus on is to get people to think about power, but also think about power in terms of what we call power with. Power over, like that's the ability to tell people that you have to do something and you can force them to do it. It's a power of manipulation. It's the power, like if I just get the right message and manipulate people in the right way, they'll do what I want them to do. Or if I can twist their arm in the right way. We've all experienced, I think, bad experiences of power. So we actually root people in positive experiences of power. Expand their imagination of like people like Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr. Were they powerful? Yeah, absolutely. But it's a different type of power, power that comes when people come together. Power when people recognize their shared interest. Power that's not like limited. So if you have more power, I have less power. But power that's actually generative, where if I bring my gifts and you bring your gifts and together we collectively have greater power to create positive communities. So we just spend a lot of time focused on power. And then we focus on the skills of organizing. Now, first of all, why community organizing? It takes a lot of training to realize like why engage is what's really a slow and patient and long-term process. So why is this worth it? And then we teach the skills of organizing. So we focus on relational meetings, and then we walk through what we call the organizing process. So beginning with listening and taking the time to discern where do you want to focus your issues, but then also developing plans, like how do you be strategic and taking on issues? We teach that. And then we also teach about action. There's a line within organizing, why do you engage in action? And people are usually trained into responding with it. So there's a reaction and we go wrong. It's so you have something to talk about afterwards in the evaluation because we teach evaluation. One of the things we teach is that, you know, if you win an issue, you want an issue. But if you train a leader, you can win issues for the next three decades or longer. Ultimately, people learn to lead by leading. So we try to get people to get involved in leadership. So it can be within their institution. We encourage our institutions to build what we call core teams that are focused on how to strengthen their organization and bring organizing into the organization. Or people perhaps get involved in one of our research action teams or on our strategy team. So we try to move people into some type of leadership role. Then there's the reflective part, right? So we get people to exercise leadership that we plan every meeting and then we evaluate afterwards so that everything is an opportunity to learn. Tell me a bit more about how the Alliance is structured. What ultimately guides our work is our members. We exist as a vehicle for our member organizations to accomplish what they cannot accomplish on their own. 
So ultimately, what guides our work is something we call a delegates assembly, which is one or two representatives from each of our member organizations. They get together anywhere from twice to four times a year. And then we have what's called a strategy team, which is really a gathering of some of our most senior leaders. They look after the organization as a whole. They think about how to integrate different pieces of our work. They think about how to train leaders, how to build relationships with people in power, all that sort of thing. And then we have what we call research action teams. So the research action teams report to the strategy team, and their job is to research issues, find out what are the concrete, specific, and winnable issues that we can go after in terms of the bigger focus areas. And they also research power, like who can make the decision. In almost all of the big issues our community faces, there are people who can make decisions that can address those issues. So who are those people? Who do they listen to? What do they care about? And then we have other teams like communications teams and such. And then what's also at the heart of our work are what we call core teams, but almost every organization calls them something else. And it's a group of people within an organization that say, you know, we want to take this practice of organizing, A, to strengthen our organization, but then B, to engage our membership in this bigger societal issue of justice, of creating a society in which everybody can thrive as a wise society. So you said that the issue that emerged most strongly from listening to your members was mental health. How has that become a campaign for the Alliance? So one part of the campaign, in Calgary back in July when they were looking at cutting the $60 million, one of the things that came up was the city had also announced its mental health strategy. And part of it was we actually mobilized people to preserve that strategy. But then our team has actually really been spending some time digging into what would make a huge difference in terms of mental health. And what they've come up with from almost everyone we talk to are saying that if we really want to tackle mental health, we have to do it preventatively and we have to engage it where it first shows up. And that's really when kids are young. The place we're going to be focusing on is actually the education system. There's almost no psychologically trained counselors in our elementary schools. So we just have this completely inadequate response at the time in which mental health practitioners said it's like often mental health issues, you can treat it when kids are young. So we're talking about having counselors in schools, but also actually have it so kids can get proper assessments. But also there's a need to have comprehensive mental health strategies. So how do you have strategies that are actually looking after both the positive mental well-being of kids, but also looking at families, but then also how do you support staff as well? But then also realizing there's some shorter term issues. Like in Calgary, we have this amazing thing called the mobile response team. They will come to your house in plain clothes and help people in mental health crises. They work 9 o'clock in the morning to like 9.30 at night. So like that needs to be 24 hours a day. How are we going to get that? Or another critical issue that's really coming to light out of a lot of the research into mental health is the entire issue of trauma. So one of the campaigns we're also looking at was something called the Trauma-Informed Collective is how do we actually get our government in the services they provide to become what's called trauma-informed. So that's both in terms of training their staff, but also in terms of their policies. But fundamentally, it's also about how do we approach people who are struggling in our society. And what's your process for going from a general issue that you know the membership wants to work on to turning it into concrete proposals and a campaign? The way we get to that point is that's the work of our research action teams. We focus on equipping community members to do research. That's another core part of our work. It actually comes out of our deeper belief in democracy, which has this belief that ordinary people are actually pretty smart and pretty wise. If they're given a chance, they can actually figure out these issues. So we work with people and we get them to meet with people who are already engaged with issues. We get them to meet with people who are experts in the areas or practitioners in the area. And they also read stuff 
And then together as a team, they begin to really reflect both on their experience, the interests of their organizations, what they see in the community, but also what they're learning from these people who have really looked into these issues. And then they come up with these more concrete and specific and winnable asks. The other flip side of it is to think about power. Like what's winnable? There's some things that would be wonderful, but we'll never win them. Or he's not right now, or maybe not as a first win. So these teams also take the time to think about what's going on in the province. What's in the interest of people who hold power? What's winnable at this moment? And also who can make their decision and who are they listening to or what do they care about? So they think about those things too. And then they come up with a proposal that they present to the wider alliance. And then the wider membership votes on it, whether that's something they want to fight for. What are a couple of victories that the Alliance has won that you find particularly meaningful or inspiring? The most recent one is, I think we totaled up the amount of cuts that we presented and it works out to somewhere between 77 and about $84 million. So here's a little organization, one staff person, and so far we've totaled up about $77 million. One of the big ones is actually preserving what in Alberta is called the low-income transit pass. It allows people who have little income to buy a month-long transit pass for like as little as $5, which you can imagine. It allows people to get to their doctors, to get to job interviews, to see friends. And when we started that campaign, people basically were saying there's like no chance that this will be preserved, and we preserved it. I just heard from someone that, you know, our campaigns helped prevent cuts to the library system that were expected, as well as to other parts of the system, preserving the mental health strategy. Yeah, so that was about $77 million of really vital community services that we were able to preserve when there's this huge political movement to simply cut and cut and cut. So I think that's a really exciting victory. And some of our victories are actually quieter that I'm also equally excited about. We had a bunch of leaders, a bunch of faith leaders who spent a year sitting down and learning from elders. And that was organized by leaders who are connected with us, but actually elder-led. And I'm still like, when I think about that, I just think that's absolutely inspiring of like talk about changing a long history to actually have largely Christian leaders sitting down and saying, okay, now we need to sit down and learn from Indigenous elders and build relationships with them. And I think in terms of deep change, that that was just really quite profound. So those are some of the things that I'm excited about that has happened in the last couple of years. You know, ultimately, we would love to see the spread throughout Canada. Like if there's other people who this sounds exciting for, reach out and give us a shout. We're at a time in which we have lots of giant, huge issues that could seem overwhelming. And I think one of the most profound ways that we can begin to address those really big social issues is beginning with communities. And not just like little community projects, but how do we actually begin to build real community power? Real community power that can transform our community and ultimately transform the very nature of our politics and our democracy. And so, yeah, people are interested in that. Let's talk. Let's have a conversation. You have been listening to my interview with Ryan Anderson, lead organizer with the Calgary Alliance for the Common Good. To learn more about the Alliance, go to calgarycommongood.org. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.